No one chooses addiction. Almost all of us have tried drugs and alcohol. We've played online video games. We've gambled. Just before I came in to record this, I poured a coffee and set my fantasy football lineup. Now, this year I based my team around Tampa Bay's superb running back Leonard Fournette. And I thought I was being super clever when I called my team Fournette Neutrality. Although I got a lot of confused looks from the other managers in my league anyway. We've all done most of the things that can result in addictive behavior, but not once has any one of us picked up a cigarette, joined an online poker league, or bought a six-pack with the goal of becoming addicted. Today we're going to explore the psychology of addiction. How do we define it, what causes it, and how can we help those experiencing it? My name is Eric Bolin, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. The conversation you're going to hear today took place about a year ago. Uh, in preparation for a profile on the CPA's addiction psychology section for Psychology Month in February of this year. As a result, some of the references you hear, like Dr. Kim explaining his Zoom background, could seem a bit dated at the present time. But the concepts we discuss, stigma, harm reduction, the language you use around substance use and addiction, those remain evergreen. Now, let's meet today's experts. I am Nassim Tabri. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa. And I, my research is focused on addiction and mental health. And I'm particularly interested in uh, transdiagnostic factors that uh, are present amongst a range of uh, problematic behaviors, such as uh, gambling, e disordered eating, procrastination, and so forth. So my name is Andrew Kim, and I'm assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Ryerson. I received my PhD in clinical psychology. I did my residency at the Royal Ottawa at the Substance Use and Concurrent Disorders Unit. And like Nassim, I'm interested in transdiagnostic processes of substance and behavioral addictions. But to be a little different, I'll talk more about my uh, research and clinical experience in concurrent disorders. So uh, the presence of both an addiction and a co-occurring mental health concern, um, and some of the factors that may help us explain why addictions and mental health go hand in hand, and what can we do to better enhance our treatment for concurrent disorders. That sounds great. Before we begin anything else, though, I want to ask you about your virtual background. You've chosen a brick wall as a virtual background, which makes it feel like you're about to start a stand-up set. Was that on purpose? <laughs> no, I just wanted to go with a neutral background, uh, given Ryerson's, we're going to change our name. Oh, that's right. Yes. Before mm -hmm. I had a Ryerson University background, but I decided to go with something more neutral. And it kind of blends in. If I don't really move, uh -huh. this might look like it's... I've had some people comment if that's real or if it's a virtual background. <laughs> well, I love it. That's excellent. Uh, so first thing that we're, we're going to talk about here, and I think most people would have a general sense of what addiction psychology would be, right? The, the notion that you, you know, consume a substance or participate in an activity to uh, an excessive degree and that there are psychological ways to help deal with that. I'm wondering if you guys can maybe narrow down the definition a little bit further. How would you define addiction psychology? Yeah, I mean, that's a very broad <laughs> question and definition. But essentially, I mean, psychology is the scientific study of the human mind, be, uh, brain and behavior, right? So addiction psychology, in that sense, is using psychological, like scientifically sound methods to better understand uh, why people may use uh, substances or engage in addiction, why some people may become 
uh, addicted, if we can use that word, and also trying to better understand what are the effects of substances and other addictive behaviors on the brain. And, you know, for me, what I find most interesting is then how can we then develop interventions and treatment and prevention so that um, we can reduce the harms and suffering of people who are living or have lived with addictions. Uh, Dr. Tabri, do you have something that you want to add to that? Uh, to add to that? Not, not really. No, I think that was pretty comprehensive, Andrew. I mean, I, I guess, uh, is there anything I would add to this now? I think that's pretty awesome. And so I think when a lot of us think about addiction, we think of drugs and alcohol, right? Chemical mm-hmm. substances and the way that that affects one's brain. When you're talking about something else, right? Maybe screen addiction or uh, gambling addiction and that kind of thing. Is the effect on the brain similar enough that you can lump them into one thing or are they very different and specific specialties? That's a good question. So uh, can I start with this one? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Uh, well, I teach addiction at Carleton. And one thing we do focus on is the brain. I have a whole lecture talking about the dopamine reward system. And, you know, there is a, uh, I think, lay understanding in the general public that, uh, you know, addiction, addictive behaviors, uh, not necessarily just uh, addictive substances, they have similar influences on the brain in terms of hijacking the dopamine reward system. And so the idea is that you're no longer engaging in other activities that are meaningful and make you feel good. You're only engaging in this one activity that really makes you feel good at, at the expense of everything else in your life. And this is where it becomes more, results more in addiction. In terms of just to uh, follow up on one thing you said that, is it this, are they all one and the same in the brain? Not necessarily. There is some evidence, uh, lay theory in the general public is that it's dopamine. Dopamine really underpins everything, but uh, Long story short, it took, that story took hold because it was a very attractive story. It started off with research with rats in the 50s. And then that quickly you know, grew into, oh, dopamine can explain all sorts of you know, addictive behaviors. And then when you look at the literature and what it says is that dopamine might help explain, it's really good at explaining alcohol, for example. That's really good. Uh, nicotine to some extent, but other addictive behaviors like cannabis, for example, not so much. There's, there's more nuance and complexity going on. Sure, it might play a role. For sure, but it's not the end-all and be-all in the brain. Okay. When you talk about the studies in the 50s with rats, are you talking about like the Rat Park study, which I believe is one of the more famous ones? Oh, no, I'm not talking about Rat Park. I'm talking about like, research. I think it was out of Montreal. Was it out of Montreal? It was Oldfield. And I'm trying to remember his name. Like They, they actually were uh, looking at re- reward responses in rats with, uh, with, uh, with the shocks to the brain. So the idea is that the, uh, a rat would be put in an expert, uh, sorry, in a in a box and there's a probe attached to its brain. It's in the septal area, I think, of the brain. And the idea is that the, if they hit the lever, it gives a very a, a little uh, shock to that part of the brain that's very stimulating and rewarding for the rat. And so they learned that rats can figure this out pretty quickly and they'll just keep going at it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And so, uh, and, and forgo eating and forgo doing anything else, but just keep pressing that lever until they get it, right? Uh, the, the reward. And so that's where the, the general idea of like reward, uh, the hijacking of the reward system comes from, at least. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Interesting. And when you guys describe yourselves, is there such a thing as an addiction psychologist? And is that how you would describe yourselves uh, when you uh, talk to colleagues and other people or uh, to the general public? 
I usually describe myself as a clinical psychologist. Um, I can't get a degree in addiction psychology. Right. Uh, addiction is my specialty area. So, you know, I wouldn't be wrong if I describe myself as an addiction psychologist, but it's not something that most people will use to describe themselves. They might describe themselves as a clinical psychologist or a professor or, a, or generally a psychologist uh, in my specialty area, say addictions. Yeah, uh, I have a similar take as Andrew. Like, uh, I'm a I'm I'm a psychologist. I'm a research psychologist. So, just to clarify, like Andrew is both a researcher and a clinician, uh, whereas I am just a researcher. And I research. I have research interests in addiction, but I I don't think we can call like calling yourself an addiction psychologist. I think that's just really one piece of what we do, right? Out of many other pieces. So. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into all those other pieces, I think, uh, over the course of this. One of the things that we're trying to do here is we're trying to sort of translate the science for a general public, right? The lay person. <laughs> In this case, I'm the lay person because I am not a psychologist. So uh, I need to understand the sort of things that uh, you're talking about. So in my day-to-day life, I turn on a bunch of screens. I go outside and go to the grocery store. I, you know, spend the day doing all the things that one might do during the day. In that day, where might I encounter something that is the work of the field of addiction psychology? Maybe something that prevents something from being as addictive as it once was, or maybe something that, you know, I don't notice when I turn on my computer, but that is actually causing me to become addicted to something where I'm not aware of it, that kind of thing. Are you talking about, because there's two things here. Yeah, there's one where, where psychological knowledge may have been used to make something more addictive or make it more likely that a person will engage in it for longer durations of time. But there are other things that you may encounter that psychologists have researched and implemented that may reduce the harms or likelihood Mm. of um, experiencing an addiction. So there are two different things. And so an example of one where you may be more likely to, a principle that may be used that may increase the likelihood of an addiction is your smartphones and sort of the increasing the time on device, right? So making it more engaging, having notifications having uh, specific specials, or if we're talking about video games in particular, things like the leaderboards or things like you only have, here's a special offer today for only $1.99, you can get extra lives or making a game more interactive, right? Make it more immersive. That may make mm-hmm. it more likely for you to spend a lot of time engaging in it. So you might not be aware of that. You know, gambling is also another example in terms of the psychological knowledge and principles that have been used to develop slot machines, electronic gaming machines that make it more likely to play for people to stay on the device for a longer period of time. But then there are other things that psychologists have done to counteract that, right? So addiction psychology itself is very broad. I do things that, you know, Nassim and I have a lot of common interests, but we also do a lot of different things. Um, We have colleagues who specialize in completely other different areas to us, but are also, uh, their specialty area is in addiction psychology. So in terms of the prevention and treatment, things like the low risk drinking guidelines, Mm -hmm. not being able to serve alcohol before X amount of time, some of the harm reduction principles, like safe injection sites, 
the development of low risk gambling cannabis guidelines, labeling. Those are all things that, you know, the psycho- psychological knowledge have contributed to help minimize the harm, not minimize, reduce the harms that some of these substances and addictive behaviors may have. So there's a lot of examples. Some are used to maybe increase the risk. Others are used to help reduce the risk. So if I go to a safe injection site here in Ottawa, I am experiencing some of the harm reduction that has come as a result of addiction psychology. But if I go to Vegas, then I'm experiencing what those uh, addiction psychology things have taught people to the, the, the other side is winning in Vegas where uh, I'm more likely to spend time sitting at a slot machine than I otherwise would. Is that about accurate? So in terms of the design of slot machine, I'm not sure if those are psychologists per se, but it's definitely taken psychological knowledge. Uh, I don't know of very many psychologists, and it might be because sort of I'm on the other side of that, right? We're in the prevention (laughs) intervention side. I don't know very many psychologists that work in the manufacturing or gaming, but definitely there's a lot of psych knowledge that goes into designing gaming machines, gambling machines, um, as well as advertisements, right? Advertisements what mm-hmm. are you, that make it more likely for you to perhaps buy a six pack. Those are all psychological knowledge that's being used in a lot of different ways, depending on the purpose. Can I add something as well here? Like it's also just about some of the nuance in the language that we use a little bit. When uh, Eric, when you were saying like, oh, when I'm out walking about going to the store or something, is there something that will make more like make me addicted? Like, I think we just also have to be careful with the language we're using. Like addicted is a, is a certain threshold of severity, right? right? Where you are, let's say, doing something repeatedly at the expense of other things. Addiction is something that should be reserved for like a very extreme condition or, or, or a severe condition. Whereas, you know, people are, you know, you can think of these ads, let's say, think, uh, that you see that about, you know, buying cigarettes or gambling and so forth. In a way, it's kind of almost like they're nudging you, right? To... To, to do a certain behavior, right? And whether one develops an addiction or not, the, that really depends on their risk, their, their risk profile, for example. You know, what, what do they come with, you know, in terms of biopsychosocial risk factors and so forth. But I just wanted to point that out, that we should reserve that term for a very specific condition. I mean, you have sub, sub-threshold and less milder forms of, you know, engagement in these activities that don't merit the, the term addiction. Is that why we are... Uh, and I see a lot of people uh, moving away from a term like substance abuse and instead using the term substance use so that it seems to be an attempt to destigmatize it, but also to gradate it to say not all substance use is bad. Is that that kind of idea? The abuse is is really done. Is re- We don't use abuse anymore because it is stigmatizing. And so, I mean, there's... We used to have substance dependence, but we don't use that anymore. But a lot of the language addiction is one of the most highly stigmatized mental health conditions. And our wording has a big influence on this. And so there's been a shift, right? So we are moving away from using the word addict, right? So person experiencing an addiction, we we tend not to use the word junkie or clean Mm -hmm. because these are laden with negative meaning that's used to uh, depict or describe someone experiencing an addiction. Also, the word addiction itself, I think, is so widely used and prevalent in our society to really, I mean, think about all the advertisements you've seen that says this show is really addictive, this game is really addictive. 
or how general lay people would say, oh, you're addicted, without really knowing what the term addiction means. Addiction is very, it's, it, it, as Nassim was saying, it's got a very specific meaning that's, that's far more than just that a person is engaging in something for a long periods of time. It encompasses uh, not just the biological, so you mentioned sort of the brain, but it also encompasses behaviors, emotions, thoughts, and some of the consequences that come with it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's widely, the word addiction is widely misused in our society to really just refer to anything that someone's going to engage in for a long period of time. I imagine that there are a ton of words that have changed their meaning over time in that way, right? Uh, do you then think that addiction psychology is the right term now that the term has been misused, I guess, by uh, the, the bulk of us for a long time? Should it be called something else? No, I think addiction psychology is very descriptive of what our specialty areas are. And I think what could be helpful is educating more education on what addiction really looks like. Something that I'm really passionate about, especially in regards to reducing the stigma associated with addictions. There's still a lot of misconception that addiction is a moral failure and a personal choice and a and a lack of character in a sense, right? Failure of um, will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sure, there there is, of course, when you're starting to engage in addictive behavior at the start, there is a bit of, there is that personal choice. But over time, when we, when we use the term addiction, again, to what Nassim and I would be considering addiction, it becomes a lot more complex than just lack of free will. There are changes that occur in the brain. There are changes that occur to a person's uh, emotional, psychosocial context that it really moves away from just becoming something that a person does because that's the choice that they have. Honestly, if it really took for me to just say, stop it, stop using, right. I really won't have a clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Right? It's much more complex than that. Yeah. Can I add to what Andrew is saying as well? Like, I'm just talking about the term addiction too. Like, the thinking on what is addiction and how one can potentially develop an addiction, you know, holding risk aside, like, you know, people think of early engagement. Let's say you try this drink, for the, you try alcohol for the first time, or you try a game for the first time. Doesn't necessarily mean a person who's tries these potentially or you know, have these activities that have high addiction qualities to them that they will end up developing an addiction. It's when they persist in these behaviors and where the fun gets taken out of it and it becomes more about doing it because you need to do it to function, right? Right. And so this is like, at least in, a, in layman's terms or it, to use a knowledge translation type of explanation where the engagement in the activity is no longer about having a good time and enjoying it while it lasts. It's more about persistence in it because you need to continue the, the activity because if you don't, then you're just miserable. Almost everything that people become addicted to is something that we all have done at one point in our life, right? We've all mm-hmm. tried beer. We've all, you know, tried marijuana. We've all played video games online, but very few of us actually do result in that being an addiction. Yeah, I've, I've never had a client when I asked them what brought you in here today say, I wanted to become addicted. And so here I am. That's never happened, Mm-mm. right? So no one starts out using substances or engaging in a behavior with the goal 
of saying, I'm going to engage in this to the degree that it's going to interfere with my functioning. Right. Right. So it's really addiction, addictive behaviors. It gives us something, right? There is a motivating factor behind it. And so over time, that motivating factor, it can change. And if you go to the addiction continuum to where we're now using the word addiction, it can turn to becoming something that's compulsive, Mm -hmm. right? So you're engaging in without thought, like sort of automatic, it's a habit. um, And it can be something that you engage in it, even though you don't like it anymore, right? right? It's just become so ingrained um, and there's changes that occur that it's really, it may not be about that that it's feeling good anymore. Right. Right. There could be something else going on. Uh, Now, Nassim, you uh, mentioned early on the connection between mental health Mm. and addiction. And I work with a charity here in Ottawa that helps homeless youth. Mm. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've been pushing for a long time is that addiction and mental health can't be decoupled, right? They are one and the same thing for, for all intents and purposes. But another thing that I'll say when, whenever I do you know, TV interviews about it or something, right? Our, none of our youth end up on the street because they are using substances, but almost everyone who is on the street ends up using substances because they're on the street, right? Mm-hmm. There's, and so there, I think there's a misperception in the general public that, you know, you become addicted to alcohol and drink too much. And eventually that leads to you being homeless. And then, you know, and that way we can sort of look away from the homeless population because it's their choice. And we've made that sort of judgment on, on those people. Right. So I'm hoping you can talk to me a little bit about the, the mental health addiction continuum. Where does one stop and the other start, or can you even separate anything about it? You know, it's interesting. Andrew and I, we chatted about this briefly once, you know, and like, uh, so addiction is a part of mental health the way we, but we, we, in our, uh, in psychology, we separate it. I mean, there's something special and unique about it uh, in particular that makes it distinct from many of the other uh, mental illness conditions that exist that we, that we know about. But, uh, and this is one of Andrew's specialties where he looks at the uh, co-occurrence of mental health problems and addiction is what he, what, what is now called, uh, what is referred to as concurrent disorders. So to answer your question, like, yeah, we separate these things because it makes it easier for us to study them and to uh, put things in little, you know, niches over there so we can dive, take a deep dive and research these, these topics and, or develop treatments or prevention methods and so forth. But taking a step back, uh, mental health and addiction is part of mental health. You cannot separate it. Right. The second part of your question was that wanted more about the addiction continuum and in the context of youths on the streets who are experiencing unstable housing. Right. And the one thing I would say, and just this is just anecdotal in my experience, but I've been with them for about 17 years now, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when we are able to house a youth and when we're able to get them the housing, right? Housing first program and all this, and then they are able to get some stability with employment and all that kind of thing, that very often they will just stop using substances, right? It, uh-huh. It's no longer part of their daily life. It wasn't that they were so dependent on it that they're going to have to keep doing it. And I, I, I would wonder if uh, they depended on it when they were on the street, but now they don't. Is that an addiction? I don't think we could you know, cast a wide blanket over everyone who's experiencing unstable housing in that sense, saying, 
other using it might be addicted to it or not. It's more everyone's route to developing addiction can be very unique and nuanced and different. And so some, some people who are on the streets and who end up, you know, turning to some substances because, you know, it takes the edge off of a very stressful existence, perhaps on the streets, that, that could be, you know, one, one route over there, whether they, they end up developing an addiction, uh, you know, that's something that, that could be examined, I think. I'm not sure we could just say that those who are on the streets who are using substances, when do they develop an addiction? It's hard to talk about people in general or a group in general. But and I think it's more nuanced. Everyone has a unique route or path or history, right? And we're all so different. And so at least in, from an addiction theory, like there is no one unifying theory of etiology here. You know, we have ideas, but I think the consensus in the literature is that uh, we should take a biopsychosocial perspective and everyone has a very more or less unique pathway to developing addiction. If I add to that and have a more of a general sort of view, again, um, as Nassim mentioned, you can't say everyone develops addiction to the same pathway, right? But people engage in addictive behaviors for a variety of motivating factors. Mm -hmm. um, people may engage in addictive the behaviors because they find it exciting, right? It becomes that rush, that excitement. Some people may do it because motivating factors for social reasons, right? You go to the casino as a social activity, you drink with your friends to celebrate. Mm -hmm. But a motivating factor that seemed to be robustly associated with uh, the risk of developing addiction is what we call coping motives, right? So some people may engage in addictive behaviors because it, it takes the pain away. Yeah. Right. So it's that self-medication hypothesis and addictions and mental health go hand in hand. The rates of concurrent disorders, especially among people who are seeking treatment, they're about 70, 80. The, the rates vary, but it's high. It is the rule, not the exception. And so, yeah, addictions go hand in hand with mental health. And for some addictions provides a relief, short term relief. Mm -hmm from the pain and the distress of what they are experiencing. And in terms of what you mentioned about uh, youth experiencing homelessness, I think that's such a powerful example of the role of our psychosocial context has on mm -hmm. our behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, one of the areas that, you know, that I'm passionate about is also addictions and homelessness. There's a stigma that people who are experiencing homelessness and are engaging in substances, well, they deserve it. They're drinking, they're alcoholics, right? So of right. course they're on the street. But for some people, the substance is a survival mechanism as well. I mean, it's, the, it's also something that provides them with relief from the current psychosocial context, right? So if you're experiencing homelessness and you're experiencing all the distress, uh, the harms that come with, with unstable housing, then substances and addictions become a powerful motivating factor, right? That helps it escape that. Mm -hmm. um, then, yeah, once you change your environment so that there is no longer that need for the addiction, then it can be really helpful to uh, help reduce or stop the substances. So, if you think about addictions, we see it as the behavior, right? Someone drinks a lot or someone is gambling all their paycheck away or they're smoking or using a lot of cannabis. They're no longer going to school or going to work 
But what's underneath that? What is leading the individuals to engage in the addictive behavior to the extent that it's causing harms? Right? And so right. there's 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 such a large piece that's hidden from view. So people only see the addictive behavior. They don't see what's underneath. And that could be a mental health, right? That their substances is using to help cope. It could be lack of housing, it could be lack of finances. And so addressing those psychosocial aspects, I think is so important. And you're right. I've also am a huge advocate of housing first, that I think with there's high rates of mental health and addictions among people experiencing homelessness. If you don't address the housing, you treat the addictions of mental health and they go back out on the streets. I, I, I don't see right. that leading to very much success. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because it just uh, perpetuates the root causes without actually, right? It deals with the surface thing that, you know, everybody looks at and without actually dealing with the, the real issues, right? I, I only have a few minutes left because I'm cheap and I have the free Zoom. So this will cut us off in about seven minutes. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you the uh, few last questions. Uh, Andrew, we'll start with you. I'm just wondering how you got into addiction uh, psychology uh, as a specialty. All right. You're a clinician and you went through mm -hmm. school and you decided eventually uh, this is where I would be. How did what was that path like for you? Yeah. So I did my undergrad in psychology at York University. And as you probably know, psychology is such a vast area. I was having trouble figuring out what I wanted to specialize in. And then in my fourth year, I took a behavior modification course and the focus was on addictions. And I found that really fascinating. And again, I didn't have very much knowledge of addictions, right? So I probably had the general lay understanding of being curious, why do people keep using when it's causing them harms? Like, what's behind that? Like, can't they just stop, right? But learning more and more about it, um, I just became fascinated that you have something that can take such a hold of your life, right? It almost seems like a prison that you keep engaging in it despite all these negative consequences. So what is behind people being at risk and experiencing an addiction? And more importantly, what can we do, right? And that sort of led me to sort of the root causes or the underlying motivating factors of why are people engaging in addictive behaviors to the extent that is, that is leading to harms, causing harms, and yet they are continuing to do so, right? It's, it's, right. It almost seems counterintuitive. Well, you're using, it's causing harms, so why keep using? Right. And, and mm -hmm. that's such a complex question and it's, and it's not something that's so easy to address and fix. And so I think a lot more needs to be done, um, but I'm excited. I'm, yeah. I think we're learning a lot, to be honest, but I think we have a long way to go. I imagine so. And Nassim, how about you? How did you get into this? So long story short, I, I, I completed my undergrad at Concordia here in Montreal and in and my PhD as well in, in psychology. So, and I was trained as a social psychologist, but I've always had interests in mental health. So such as a depression, anxiety disorders and so forth, which was more of a, you know, which wasn't necessarily the topic of my, my PhD, but what I I ended up going to Boston to Harvard Medical School and training in the eating disorders uh, clinical and research program over there for for a year, where I developed you know a, a strong interest and expertise in eating disorders. And following that postdoc, I 
came over to Carlton as a postdoc. I worked with Michael Wall, who was also Andrew's former mentor. And that's where we met the first time. And uh, Michael studies addiction and more in the, in the context of gambling and some cannabis right now. That's where I developed interest in addiction. But what, what, what my interests are is more like, what are these common things that we see? What, are there commonalities between eating disorders, addictive behaviors, and other mental health conditions? And so addiction is really is a core focus of my research, but it is uh, what I'm really interested in is what are some of the common denominators we see here that we could that could be used to help inform you know treatment and prevention. Now, over the course of of that time, right, you guys have uh, you know crossed over some specialties. You're uh, specializing in a little different things as well. I'm wondering over the last several years, right? And aside from the language that we use here, you're both using very person-centered language, and this is uh, obviously a step that the field has taken. But over the last 20 years, like, what are you doing now that you would never have done 20 years ago that you didn't have any idea about that people researching this stuff would never have considered? Like, how has it changed? The field changed in the last, you know, decade or so, or two. Oh, it's changed a lot, man. <laughs> I imagine it has. <laughs> has a lot. <laughs> no? um, I guess you know there are many perspectives one can take on. How- you know, on, on change over here, like just from a uh, diagnostic perspective, you know, addiction was once play, thought of as an impulse control disorder, for example, right, Andrew, in the DSM, the early iterations of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health, Mental Illness Disorders, which psychiatrists use for diagnosing clinical psychologists. And that shifted where then we had, I think, uh, over time from impulse control, then we had something more along the lines of, uh, we had terms such as drug abuse and substance dependence in DSM-4. And then more recently, we have substance use disorders and addictive behavior. So some broad strokes over here. We always, we initially thought of these, what we call addiction today as you know, having roots in impulse control problems. Impulsivity is, is key and important for understanding as a risk factor for addiction, but it's not the end all and be all. But we also changed how we think about the process of, of addiction over time. So it's not just about impulsivity, but the process of moving from, you know, uh, positive reinforcement, it's fun, it's great, to uh, negative reinforcement where I need to engage in this behavior, it's more compulsive and so forth. The other key, I think, turning point, well, not turning point, but key advance was that it's no longer about substances. It's also about behaviors. And we're changing our definition to be more encompassing of that. So it's, when we talk about addictive behaviors, that includes alcohol, drinking alcohol, uh, smoking cigarettes, not just you know playing a video game or gambling and so forth. And so we're, we're, we are, our thinking has evolved a lot over time. And, and I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about all of this, but these are some of the I, at least from my perspective, some of the big things that have happened over time uh, in the, in, that I can think of right now. Yeah. yeah. And just to add to that, uh, I think the uh, few big pieces as well is it moved away from sort of the moral, it's a moral failure yeah. and just a medical disease that is just all about the physiological dependence um, to better understanding the psychosocial context, right? So we're looking at addiction from a more holistic perspective mm-hmm. and knowing that our current social functioning or our social determinants of health has a huge impact on addictions. Thanks to Dr. Andrew Kim, Chair of the Addiction Psychology Section at the CPA, and to Dr. Nassim Tabri, Research Psychologist specializing in addiction at Carleton University. We had this conversation in preparation for Psychology Month back in February, and the profile I wrote on the Addiction Psychology Section is available on the CPA website. The link is in the show notes to this podcast episode. 
Today's episode was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. It was produced and edited by Jamie Montgomery. And our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor. 